Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Tapan, the CTO at Trextle, and we discuss Trextle's mission to make networks more efficient, Starlink's early release, and using micro pitches to move your projects forward. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hey, Joel, how are you? Fantastic. How are you, my friend? Doing good. I love the beard. Um, I don't think I've ever uh, really watched an episode, so I don't know if this is new. Uh, probably is new because I've seen your photos and it's you don't look like this. <laughs> I know. That's like the big move. We just did some new photos like about a week or two ago, and now we have to update wow. all the uh, social media sites. I was, I was pretty surprised with when the weather changed. So it just got cold here. And you're in Atlanta, right? Correct. I was just up there last or two weekends ago. I have family in like the Madison area. Uh-huh. So we took the kids up to see the see grandma and then go to the aquarium and do all of that. But sure. when the weather's changing, this being the first year I've ever had a beard, you would think that it would be more warm, right? You think that the beard would provide more warmth. It doesn't as much as you would think, but... Uh, <laughs> I saw that you do like a lot of running and stuff outside. Do you notice uh, the beard at all with with that? Uh, not really. I think it's a fallacy. It's one of those things that say like, oh, you look at like old Viking warriors and they have this big <laughs> thick beard because it's cold. I don't think that's what it was. <laughs> um, even though I've never really grown it that long, but I don't think that how that's how it works. <laughs> Have you ever have you ever met uh, Roy? He's the CTO of Calendly. He's out in Atlanta, and he's like a big runner too. No, I've not unfortunately met ever met Roy. Uh, I know Tope though, uh, and and we have talked, so I know of Roy, but we have never actually met. Interesting. Okay, so Atlanta is is pretty big uh, yeah. community running wise. There's lots of events. There's lots of even like local um, sort of uh, charity uh, events that you can participate even in this cold. But because of COVID this year, it's mostly been like remote. People have tried doing like Strava challenges and things like that. It's mostly been quiet this year though. Yeah, when when I was talking with them, like I, I run every morning, right? But mm-hmm. I do like a two to three mile run just to wake up, and that's that's how I start my day. And he gets on, and I'm like, oh, he likes to run. That's cool. And the dude runs like 50 miles at a time and competes in like the Georgia death race. And I was like, okay, well, I don't want to go running with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a different kind of running. I, I think I'm more in your court. I do like uh, 5Ks or, or like a five mile run just to kind of know where I stand. And, you know, I have some like PRs that I try to be- beat from time to time if I'm feeling uh, particularly uh, adventurous. But uh, generally speaking, I'm not doing 50 mile at a time. <laughs> that is that is quite out there. Now, for me, like I didn't do the outside stuff or at least make a, an, an effort uh, until I got older. When I was younger, I was mostly inside on the computer. And that's where I really got into te- technology. Where did you get into it? Um, so I grew up in India. I moved here right after high school. And uh, in India, back when I was, I would say, middle school, roughly, the computers started to become a thing. And so my first operating system was MS-DOS. And, you know, you'd run some some funky commands. And our teacher would have coded up a script that we would run. And it would do something like a fun game, uh, things like that. That was my first exposure. 
as I grew older in high school and whatnot, it just seemed a little interesting to me. I, I wasn't one of those whiz kids that was like, oh, I started the com- school computer, uh, uh, you know, uh, club or anything like that. But we learned Pascal uh, back then, which was, I, I didn't really like that. Uh, there was another programming language that was specifically made for education. It was for younger kids, but they taught us in high school for some reason. It's called Logo. Uh, I think someone at IBM made it to teach their kids and it became a thing. I, I don't recall who exactly made it, but the idea goes, you can, there's a, there's a pixel pointer uh, and you can uh, do some Lisp-like functional programming to move it around and it'll draw funny things. So you can say, put the pen down, change the color, now make a stroke, like move 10 pixels forward and things like that. So that's when I really got interested in like like making funny drawings uh, with programming. So it was quite fun. Um, and yeah, that's how kind of the love affair started. We played games too, of course. Um, I remember my dad uh, back uh, home took out a loan to buy me a computer because uh, they were very expensive back then. And uh, I was the only kid in the neighborhood that had a computer at home. Uh, other folks would, you know, go at cyber cafes and things like that. And so we'd always have kids over at our house playing video games. And uh, that's kind of how the love affair began. And so you were, you grew up mainly in India. And then when did you come? Did you come directly to the United States? Did you spend time in other places? Yeah, no, I came directly here. I was about 17 or 18. So right when I graduated high school, that summer. So I came here in May and I think I graduated high school in like March. So I got my um, certification and and then I just moved here. So funny enough, I wanted to be in aviation. Um, That was my big dream. I wanted to be a pilot. Um, So I applied uh, uh, to, to get into Indian Air Force and they wouldn't have me. I got into the India, uh, the American Air Force and my parents wouldn't let me go. And so this, this, uh, it just it's just funny how I came into like computers. Uh, it seemed at the time that it was a second choice to me, but I had moved to America to to get into aviation and I wanted to get my I had my student pilot license in India and I was gonna collect some more hours to you know uh, have my private pilot license done uh, here in the states. And it just didn't quite happen that way. And, um, and I ended up doing my bachelor's in computer science and kind of fell in love even more so than, than when I was in high school. It was more of a hobby back then, uh, not a passion. And really in college is when it started to really become a thing for me. But yeah, I came here after high school, long, long answer. Are you still flying today? No, not really, I wish. So our CEO, Jason Morrow, he's a bit of a flyer. He uh, has flown in private planes and uh, uh, just, I think some bug got into him and, and uh, he bought a single prop uh, plane, which he's uh, asked me many times uh, that, that we should go on a trip with. That thing is a bit of a death trap because uh, if, <laughs> if, if you've ever flown in like a smaller oh, yeah. plane, so yeah, yeah. Well, once you get up there, it's kind of, it's not the same thing as fly, flying an airliner, right? It just gets up there and like slowly you're moving in the, in the air, not really doing much. And, you know, if a gust of wind comes around, it shakes the whole whole thing a lot of a lot of rattling noises which uh which can be a bit scary i i, I at some point when i get back into um flying once i feel i have um well it, it's I, who knows when it's going to be a good time but uh just things are very very chaotic at the moment and so 
wait, waiting for things to calm down before I get back into flying. Yeah, when you can buy a bunch of planes is when you get into flying. <laughs> <laughs> so surprisingly, it's not that expensive to like get into flying. It's I think 140 bucks an hour, something like that. I don't know the current rates. This yeah, it's is- like I looked at it a couple months ago. It's like it's like five grand to get your like basic license, and then yeah. ten grand to get a more advanced one. It's not horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's not that expensive. It's just a time commitment because you have to study radio telephony, meteorology, and things like that. And it's just been so long, like instrument reading, and I just have forgotten probably most of it all. Yeah, it's amazing how our memory works too. When I saw that you had founded multiple companies and now you're working at a company that, that I don't think you founded Truxel, correct? Correct. No, I did yeah. not. So I was like, I, I really like people that have, or I like getting to talk with people that have that experience similar to me of, you know, starting something from nothing and you just have to deal with every, it's a very maturing experience uh, to go through. And so whenever I see people then go back and work with other companies, I'm always curious, or is it because they found like other entrepreneurs and they wanted to join them because, or maybe they didn't want to start from scratch all over again, or they saw some, a really hot opportunity in the market. I'm always curious, what was your like entrepreneurial perspective to join Trexel uh, and not just start something else again? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, um, I've read this, or this may be even a cliche that founders are a little bit broken. And once you're a founder, you're kind of always a founder, right? Like something has to be crazy with you to want to go out and start a company. When in theory, you know, you can move to Bay Area and make half a million bucks, and uh, half a million bucks a year and have a, you know, cushy, comfortable life. So, so something deep within you has to drive you to either want to start a company or, or uh, join something small enough where you can really grow. Some people do it for money and all sort of wrong reasons. Which So, so one of the mistakes that I had made in, earlier in my career is I started a company, uh, not for the money, but I knew I wanted to start a company. And that was the reason. I didn't care about the problem. I didn't care about uh, you know who I'm starting with. And so I kind of made these naive mistakes. And as I've uh, kind of gained a bit more experience, um, you know, I'm, I'm only looking to work on problems that really excite me, even if I wasn't getting paid. Like that's the threshold that has to uh, meet. And one of those problems that Trextel is trying to solve is um, if you think about networks and, you know, it's more important now than ever, you know, and that can be the copper cable coming into your house or uh, wireless, um, you know, AT&T signal. It takes a lot to operate these things. And this kind of work happens behind the scenes and is obscure. Most people don't know uh, how, how you know, it all functions. We just expect it to have you know, very high bandwidth, low latency available all the time. So who does all this? And um, I knew uh, the, one of the founders of the company, Chris Damico, from, um, uh, we worked together at, a, at another startup. <clears throat> And um, he was on the board of Trexel at the point, um, but he and Jason Morrow started this company together. And so he was the one who introduced me to the problem. And, and frankly speaking, I had never thought about this, right? Like who, who, how much it takes to keep these systems up and running, even though I'm a CTO and I've run uh, many complex systems before, but our purview is generally within the, within the application layer. Now think about that for much, much grander transcontinental networks, right? There's, it just takes a lot of human uh, labor to, to keep this, uh, keep this uh, up and running. And so this niche uh, was very interesting to me. Uh, these support centers are called NOCs, Network Operation Centers. Um, 
And currently, it's run in a very traditional way where you get an automated ticket by a system or an alert or some customer calls and say, I have this problem. They go in, they look at the different tools, they look at different logs and say, okay, all right, I think here's your problem. I need you to do X, Y, Z, Mr. Customer. I'm going to press a button and it's going to fix your issue. We should be able to automate that uh, uh, to a large degree. And, and, you know, majority of those resolutions tend to be, hey, just reboot the thing. Uh, sometimes it gets complicated. Let's say you're a Walmart and in a store, you may have hundreds of devices, multiple different connections, multiple vans coming in, maybe a wireless connection, maybe a satellite connection with something like Starlink. So how do you manage all that? can get pretty gnarly. So I found it really interesting that this company <clears throat> who's been around for 13 years, Trexta has been around for 13 years um, and has solved this problem by deploying humans and now starting to ask this question, like, why do we, uh, why do we, you know, why can't we make this process more efficient and, and help others do the same? Um, so, you know, they started building systems to kind of dog food and, and make uh, our own knock more efficient. And as we are progressing, there is a natural extension uh, of this to, to other uh, providers uh, that can be applied. And that's just an interesting problem to me. Um, so like removal of repetitive human labor, uh, whether that's sort of physical. Atlanta has another a bunch of startups that are attempting in the similar space. And so this idea of eliminating repetitive human labor kind of thing got into my head and, and uh, that's how I got involved. That's interesting. Yeah. When, when you're describing that, it sounds like like a kid in the candy shop for an entrepreneur. If we have a, we have an existing <laughs> business that we already have validated as a model that's operating, that's mm-hmm. highly human intensive. And we want to bring someone in to help us make efficiencies everywhere and, and grow. Yeah. And um, I, I think, um, so, so MSPs, as these are called, managed service providers, uh, when you're Starbucks and you buy internet, you know, let's say you have hundreds of locations, you're not going to go to Comcast here and AT&T here and some other company there. You generally go to one big vendor and say, okay, you know, give me internet AT&T. And they have to then figure out how to do aggregation of all these providers, billing and, 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 and all of that. So, so these deals get very, very complicated. And, and again, it's, it's one of those businesses that's kind of in, the, in, in, in such a niche market that no one thinks about. So another company, I don't know if you know about this company called Flexport. They do uh, freight forwarding. Um, it's a valley-based company. Um, there, are, there are many, many companies like these. Uh, I think they were, they were a YC company as well. They do freight forwarding. Like, who the heck knows what freight forwarding is? <laughs> uh, there's a company in Atlanta called Store. They do kind of warehouse management, but I'm totally describing it incorrectly. No, I've uh, had them on the, the show CEO before. Was here. Oh, like, that's right. A year or two ago, yeah. Uh, not, uh, not Sean. His, uh, his uh, co-founder you had on the show, I think. Jacob. Jacob. Yes. Yeah. There you go. So, so yeah. So, so, so this is one of those industries that can benefit from. Uh, this type of automation and modernization of software stack, um, which is also uh, kind of an interesting um, uh, industry for me. So are your customers like the AT&Ts who are trying to organize this or like who are your customers? Yeah, so AT&T, who's one of our biggest uh, customer, it's, it's uh, the word customer gets a little bit tricky here because we build the systems and the software that gets used by AT&T and it gets used by the end customer. So um, uh, the example that I gave, Walmart, who's not a customer, but similar retailers like uh, them can buy our software, 
um, and buy the services that come along with it. And they generally tend to buy it from the likes of AT&T because that's where they, they want to get one bill uh, with all the line items included instead of having to go and purvey. So it's a distribution channel for us, but they internally end up using our systems as well. So one of the reasons why it just works that way is uh, because how networks interconnected, uh, if, if there's an issue and we can't resolve it, let's say it's on the AT&T's end, then we need to be integrated into their systems and know, hey, this is a circuit that's having trouble. So, you know, we're going to lob these ticket over to you so for you guys to work on. Or, you know, we need to get smart enough um, to say, hey, this circuit is having exactly this issue. Here's the resolution. If you apply, uh, it'll take care of the problem. Um, so, uh, AT&T is, is a distributor and they're a customer as well because it's kind of interlinked. And then, of course, uh, uh, others in retail and banking space uh, tend to be our uh, customer security focused customers um, that require uptime is uh, ultra sensitive. Um, those tend to be our customers. And what's the buzzword in this area? I was reading some of the notes and there was like AI ops platforms, different things. What's the buzzword for you guys? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think so. So AI ops is certainly this category, but if you think about, let's say a data dog or even AWS to a certain degree, they do a little bit of everything. And, and it's more, the word is more used at the application layer or, or, or the DevOps layer, uh, where you're trying to deploy an application on multiple different servers and you apply monitoring and reporting and things like that. That's where the word has been used, but there's no reason. If, if I you know walked up to another uh, CTO and I use the word AI ops, I think that's where their brain would that's go. That's where I would go, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so some people have used it in our space. I think it's a little bit, incorrect but that and i don't think there's a buzzword but uh i would say human in the middle ai right because i don't think we're ever going to be able to completely get rid of humans there's just um intelligence required to solve these complicated problems where you don't have enough context that you can train train a model on to be able to automate this process so human in the middle ai is i would say probably a buzzword for us <laughs> One thing is very clear that we're not going to solve this problem through conventional methods. And so we will have to start, uh, we have trained models. And I mean, that's the only way this is this is going to work out. Um, AI and ML are buzzwords and everyone uses it. And hey, we have this little magic dust sprinkled on top of our product uh, where there are very few companies out there where the technology itself is the product. Uh, like without it, the product simply cannot exist. And and Trextle is one of those use cases. Like if you think about Stitch Fix or um, you know similar companies, like their entire model is unless there is AI, some algorithms doing recommendations for you, there is no business. And Trextle is kind of in a similar space as we move more and more towards the uh, software as a service model uh, rather than the the managed service provider space. Yeah, what's the that's a good that's a good start. Like what's the the future? What's 10 years out for Trexel? Yeah, so I think um it's probably going to continue to move in this direction where you know, I think we live in the in the world where Knox should be ultra efficient, very small, and should always know um, what's uh, what are the resolutions and and the only 
the only time when humans get involved is when something is totally out of scope of AI to, to be resolved. One example I give is currently we have models that can predict when the device is going to go down with an 85 to 93% accuracy based on the previous performances of similar devices, that location, the type of circuits they are using, who the OEM is, what version of software they're using. And there are about a couple hundred features uh, that we mine. And based on that model, it says, okay, in next two to three hours, I'm 85% certain this device is going to have some sort of issue. Um, so we can apply, um, uh, you know, proactive remediation of such devices. And I think in 10 years, the future looks more and more like this. You know, you can do simple things like rebooting, but in a complex multi-van, uh, and when I say multi-van, it's like you have a Comcast connection, you have AT&T connection, you have wireless connection, you have satellite connection. How do you manage this at a retail location to have high bandwidth, and high uptime uh, availability uh, of connection. Uh, some, some folks have tried this at the uh, hardware layer. Uh, so there are SD-WAN solutions that you can buy out there today. I'm, I'm going a little bit off on a tangent Please, here. Yeah. So, so, so pull me back. Um, but so this, this, this thing that has been tried at the hardware level, it only works like, so if Cisco has a multi-van solution, it only works with Cisco. What about the others? Uh, in, a, in a large retail environment, you'll have multiple different equipments and systems that have to work together. So that's where a company like Trextel comes in and provides this sort of single pane of glass uh, that can work with different manufacturers, systems, um, no matter who you have, it, it just works. And that's kind of the future. So if, if you are, you know, Walmart and you have 5,000 locations, imagine if you have one ticket each, each store, that's 5,000 uh, tickets per day. I mean, how many, imagine the human labor required to manage that. So we want to be able to reduce that, you know, hopefully to zero someday, but I think in, in 10 years, uh, make your knocks much, much more uh, efficient using this kind of proactive remediation. All right, so I've got two things for you. The first one is it's like when a new provider like Starlink comes in because you're this single pane, right? For all of these multi-van, like all these different providers. How do you interface with Starlink? Do do they let you know a product's coming? Does it really matter? Like, how do you start making sure your systems are compatible with that? Yeah, that's a great question. So in networking, there's an underlying, there are, there are a couple of protocols that um, are standard protocols. So just like for accessing uh, websites, you use HTTP and HTTPS. Uh, there are similar protocols called SNMP and ICMP, and those protocols are common amongst network hardware manufacturers. These protocols were defined by IEEE many, many years ago. I think it was in 70s or something like that. So really old protocols, they have been amended and so forth uh, to to work with modern equipment. Uh, but there's a standard way of telemetry collection, data collection uh, from these devices and to be able to issue it commands. So it doesn't really matter when a Starlink comes around to for, for us to have to be in the know, and, and I'm saying this in isolation. Of course, there are many, many benefits to partner with them and you know um, have um, sort of these API connections that can where systems can talk to each other. But from purely a technical standpoint, if there existed a network device and we needed to monitor it, theoretically it's possible over ICMP and SNMP because um, those are just the standard industry protocols that everyone builds on. And then are you seeing, like, have you actually seen deployments of Starlink yet? I saw that they had a few out. 
Yeah, so uh, so I personally know of a couple of deployments in uh, uh, California where uh, they have been experimenting with it. So a couple of uh, people that I know who have gotten it uh, just because they are around the Elon Musk globe is you can watch Netflix fine. It works. Uh, there are latency issues sometimes. So, uh, But if you like really experience it, you can't really tell that this is coming from a satellite. It's, it's the general feedback that, uh, that I have gotten. I don't know much more details in terms of the technology that they use and whatnot, but from a consumer standpoint, the people who have used it have really positive things to say Ooh. so far. We actually had our, our production meeting today. And one of the initiatives I gave one of our like co-producers was like, I want to contact Starlink, which is owned by, if you go to their website, they're owned by SpaceX. So like contact their PR people, tell them that we want to record a podcast episode over Starlink, like maybe with one of their engineers or something, and then have them send us a Starlink and we'll just use it for the recording and send it back. And then that way it'll be like a promotional thing. And uh, it'll be cool for like, I don't, and I don't know. And then I was thinking to myself, like, why am I so excited about that? Like, I was like, <laughs> I was such a nerd, man. I just want to record a podcast over Starlink. <laughs> okay. I think it's pretty cool, right? Like, I mean, think about the the bandwidth, the amount of just, I don't know how they manage the latency. That's the technical part that I haven't been able to wrap my head around. I think it was, it's like sub 200 milliseconds, which if you think about like same distance, like transoceanic, it's a little bit less, but to be able to maintain that over this, like you're, you're going, I think it's like hundred miles. I don't know the exactly the, the distance, but like hundred miles or something in space and come back, uh, beam of flight. That is magical, right? It, it part part of uh, and we all use satellites today, right? Like you turn on Google Maps and voila, you're using GPS, right? So it's not that uh, consumer use of satellite is new, but something about like streaming Netflix or recording a podcast over uh, internet streaming beaming from the satellites, it is exciting. I I'm in the same boat. I, I would say that would be pretty cool. Yeah, because it's new. But um, I, my second question is about you mentioned like 5,000 tickets, right? And, and the humans responding. And so I'm curious, like within your organization, have you made a special team that, that like looks and groups the tickets by commonality to figure out which ones to like, you know, AI assist first or help automate for like, how, how did that problem like dictate your team structures? Yeah, so um, there are, so a lot of this today is uh, dictated by how contracts are organized. So there's generally tier one, tier two, tier three. So think about a standard uh, support team. And I talked about the broadband ag aggregation piece. So if you think about all the players involved in resolving a ticket, so there's a customer, there's a tier one, tier two, tier three MSP provider like us, there's broadband aggregator, there's the actual circuit provider and there's the guy that who does the billing. So there's about seven people I said here. And depending on how the product or the service was purchased, everyone will play a different role. So for example, let's say Trextel is tier one uh, for a customer, which means our phone number is one of those 1800 phone numbers that gets called or our system is the first one that generates a ticket and our, our people start responding to it. Again, depending on how it was purchased, somebody else may have uh, received that first phone call and then it moves uh, towards us. 
but we are starting to build systems that uh, we have systems that connect these seven dots together and provide a holistic view of, okay, this is where the ticket originated. This is how it has traveled. And this is the final resolution, Mr. Customer, uh, your issue has been fixed by XYZ person. So in this crazy world of the movement of ticket and who's handling what specific part of the problem, it's really hard to, and, and, and I'm not sure if your question was with the lens of how do you uh, organize this data set from a, for a training standpoint, but even from like human organizational standpoint, uh, generally this, when you deploy these services, um, your call center software, your support systems, our sort of single pane of glass software gets configured for what you have purchased and how we sit in that stack of you know seven or eight moving pieces. So that's purely from a servicing standpoint. From a model training and um, sort of articulation of uh, uh, data set, it, we treat every device as a node that's common. Like it, it doesn't matter uh, whether we are service one or uh, tier one or tier two or you know how it was sold. But we say you're a device capable of doing uh, wipe, um, you know, and, and you have three interfaces and uh, you can do, let's say, uh, Wi-Fi as well. So that's one category. And then you're looked at all the traffic that comes from you as the device is being looked at in that kind of same category. Got it. The, 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 did I answer your question? Yeah, we're we're getting there. All right. So you can look at it. There's you can look at it from like the device specific level across all your companies, regardless how the sales arm of the company happened. How mm -hmm. do you prioritize or identify opportunities to generate automation? How do you say there's a million things you could do? How do you determine which ones are the ones you're gonna work on now? Yeah, that's a great question. So um Depending, so I'll give you one example. A lot of our customers tend to be retail and there are generally similar type of devices that get deployed within a industry. So that's one way we have grouped them or some similar type of devices. So for example, let's say we're going to solve issues of APs uh, because in the last one or two months, you know, that's that's been majority of our traffic for incoming uh, uh, calls or tickets that the systems are generating. So uh, it is a little bit reactionary today where we look at the recent traffic of um, where the pressure is building from and then how do we uh, how do we solve that uh, problem? But it, it, it generally self-categorizes itself where the whoever's the loudest sort of gets served uh, first. And whether that's a device type or a specific industry type, uh, for example, one of our customers is uh, one of the largest banks in the world. Because of COVID, uh, majority of their uh, users were you know, sitting in their call center in their properly set up systems behind firewalls and the secure environment where they're uh, servicing their customer and overnight that changed. Uh, so of course that had to be prioritized um, over um, you know, some of the other projects that uh, we were running. Um, so it is reactionary and uh, the need of the day. But if, if I look at over let's say one year, I, I've only been here four months, but if, if I look at over one year, how the systems have been prioritized, it's generally based on um, whatever, whichever section is the noisiest part of the network. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then it's, it's also, it's a good thing that it's really clear uh, what to, what to work on. Right. I always say whenever problems happen and the solutions are really, really clear, those are some of the greatest moments because there's really no other options. It's just like, yep, that, that may be a difficult thing, but at least it's clear. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. And I, I think, I think, uh, you know, this is a great lesson I'm taking from from uh, this conversation that uh, figuring out metrics where you can be more proactive instead of reactive. In the world of MSPs, a lot of the times it is the fire of the day. And so it's hard to like break that pattern and say, all right, let's zoom out and look at, you know, uh, collectively uh, what what things need to be prioritized. And and it's whatever, whatever's the buzzword of the day, you, 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 you go and sort of chase that down. Having said that, at the end of the day, these are... And, and I'm repeating myself here, uh, you know, from a technical networking node by node standpoint, there's some commonality between the problem of six months ago and the problem of now. So you are constantly moving uh, and getting better and better and better, whether that's your model training or your operational procedures or things like that. Um, and it's even though it seems chaotic, you continuously get better. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just like in my mind, I, just, I try to like paint a picture for myself. <laughs> and I'm just I was wondering, do they have a team of people sitting around? And the reason is, is because I'm personally interested uh, because of the fact that so I, I built uh, two different companies that mm-hmm. uh, and like historically and sold them that it, and they were both geared around uh, uh, op, like automating or semi-automating human processes. So one was the financial software where this mm-hmm. a very expensive financial analyst was needed. And so to rapidly scale a company to multiple locations, you would have to hire, you know, 20, 30 of these very expensive people. And then that made the business model not work as well. So, so I came in, did worked with them for three years um, as a business partner and built them things that you made it efficient. So now you could have one of those people that could do the work of 10. So you really only needed two to run 20 locations. Right. Right. And that, that made it all work. And so I did that. And then I did another one in real estate where we helped reduce the size of, you know, the number of people you would need on staff and things like that. Um, so I was always curious, like when, when you started talking about, Oh, I joined this 13 year old company, they've got these people and they're doing like ticketing and automate. And I'm like, how are they? Pri- there must be so much opportunity. Like I said, kid in the candy shop, how are you prioritizing this? And you're like, well, they just really need us really bad. So we're just, we got a lot of opportunity and we're just executing and, and that's perfect. Right. Yeah. I, 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 I see what, what, where you were going with this now. Um, I think the in in addition to sort of the 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 noise of the day because there's there's a lot of low hanging fruit and I guess that's a better way of describing this where there are there are about uh, twenty nine to thirty uh, resolutions that you can apply to a to a ticket uh, based on which equipment that it's coming from. That's a lot, right? I mean, if you and 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 if you look at some of these uh, operating procedures, first thing you do is reboot. If that doesn't fix the problem, go on to this thing, then go on to this thing, then go on to this thing. And, and these manual processes are so well-defined that that also provides a little bit of a structure to go and say, all right, we're going to figure out a system that can predict and reboot a device automatically. And if that doesn't fix the issue, then we're going to go and try the next thing. So uh, the the class of problems that we may choose is, I think, 
random at the moment or or noise of the day but sort of the the application of method i think uh, which is what you were asking about is comes from um uh, sort of these predictive resolutions that that human applies. So, so the algorithm is, you know, those uh, as a human, you go through this, um, you know, series of steps, and now we are trying to codify that. Whether it runs in carbon in humans or in silicon in computers, like that's the that's the process. I love it. I love it. So you're at this company. You're excited to be there. Like, what's what's the thing or the project that you're really pumped up about today? Yeah, so um, the project uh, that we we're working on, one of the examples I gave was this 85 to 93% um, predictability with which we can say this device is about to go down. If you think about that, that's kind of magical, right? Um, how many things can be predictive with that level of accuracy um, uh, within that short period of time? And this is because we have you know terabytes of highly structured data that we can run models on uh, to be able to achieve such a high uh, level of um, predictability. Now, this this is in lab environment, so I'm really excited to kind of dog food our own system and launch it in um, early Q1 in, in our own uh, uh, knock center to see how this is performing in real world. And of course, the numbers are going to be a little different, but uh, I was just so surprised when, we, when I heard the numbers and I uh, saw the first set of results come in from the, the model training process is that I never really expected it to be that good. I was like, all right, if we get to 70%, that would be pretty fantastic. And we can just, uh, you know, tell humans, hey, there's a 70% chance this device is going to get into trouble. That would be pretty amazing. It'll make people more efficient and have a lot more context around the, the issue that they're trying to work against. Now that I've, I'm starting to see these numbers, it's very, very encouraging. Along with that, the other uh, project that we're working on, and I would put them a similar level of excitement, uh, is anomaly detection. So because our business or, or uh, service uh, providers in general around networking is so much of that is inbound traffic. And if you can figure out how to categorize the traffic on the fly, apply automated resolution, uh, that just makes you so much efficient. So a lot of the times, one-off events happen in, in a network or at your home. Like think about hey, your power just flickered for a second. So it took your router down and now it's back up. Like that's a one-time thing. It's never going to happen again. But to a human or to a system, they don't really know the difference that the power flickered, which is why we're seeing this ticket. So can we create a model that detects these anomalies and says, hey, this ticket, we logged it, great. It's never going to happen again. Don't worry about it. Don't even look at it, right? How can you get to a point where we are able to detect these anomalies um, uh, with enough amount of data? You can, uh, and and I'm starting to see some encouraging numbers. So it's a coin toss today. The model that we have in lab environments about 50-50, which is fairly useless, but but uh, we're making great progress. We started with 2% accuracy. <laughs> so from 2% to 50% is, is rather encouraging. Um, and I'm really looking forward to get those numbers to be in the 90s as well. Dude, that's, that's so cool. Like the predictive ability. My mind's just going off on that. Like you could do so many unique things. Like you could, if you had, if you knew how many devices you could do like pre-ordering projections and stuff like what, exactly. what times of the year. I, I just saw some interesting data uh, the other day 
it was like, I don't know why, but they were saying there's like a, in the winter, there's a spike of 911 calls at 3 a.m. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Why is that? And it's because when people get out of bed to go to the bathroom at three in the morning, which is a common time for people, apparently, the, the floor is very cold and your feet hit the floor and that constricts your blood vessels and people have heart attacks, like older people have heart attacks. So there's actually like a direct correlation and like 911 calls in the winter at 3 a.m., to heart attacks and all of that. And I was like, that is just, that is crazy. It's like, I, so I texted my brother-in-law who, <laughs> who has some heart valve thing, but he's, he's younger, but he has a heart valve. I was like, dude, get heated floors. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I was like, get heated floors, man. I, was like, I don't want like, <laughs> oh yeah. Sleep, sleep in your bed with your slippers on or, or something, mm-hmm. wear some socks. Mm-hmm. Man, yeah, but but that's the kind of random thing that like you know uh, normal human beings like don't think about that. Like you come across these things as adding to evidence, but there's there's patterns that you can detect to to say, you know, yep, we're gonna need more people uh, around winter time because three a.m. Uh, heart attack calls are coming in, right? Like there's there's so much if if you knew that statistic that just makes your uh, you know one of the nine one one operators imagine like. Man, there's there's lots you can do with just that one little statistic, right? That's and that's what we are trying to do for networks. I love it. I love it. And when you when you came in, I mean, you, you said four months now. You help you come in. You've got the startup experience. You you join an existing company. Was there like what was the culture like? Was there resistance to to your style? Like how did that go? Yeah, and and I would say we're we're still in the middle of it, uh, figuring this out. And and to be perfectly honest, I told Jason uh, as we were uh, discussing me coming on board is like, hey, you know, what excites you about this? And 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 this organizational change was equally exciting to me. I would rather say more exciting to me than just the software building part because. As I mentioned, you can go do software building anywhere. There are, uh, you know, a lot of different networking. Like if I want to work with networking, like I can go work at any networking company. Like why Trextil? It is this transformation um, of a business that has operated in a certain way, and now they're looking at this problem with a completely different lens, and 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 trying to do that in a very rapid way, right? So so humans are not built this for for this kind of change, but. Uh, the support that I've received from uh, the senior leadership and and just everybody in the team has been fantastic. Everyone's open-minded. Everyone understands that this is new for us. Generally what happens in, if you think about a startup or in any new business, right? Um, You hopefully have figured out something that people want and and now you have to figure out distribution and, you know, then, then scale the company. That's generally how the journey goes with a successful company like this, it's a little bit reversed. They've figured out distribution through AT&Ts of the world and, and then able to grow revenue around you know, 30 million in, in, in ARR, which is fantastic. But now how do, you, how do you make the product in a way that can um, you know, uh, just, just put this thing on fire? Um, and so, so that was rather unique. Um, coming back to like like uh, the, the 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 culture, it is evolving. Sometimes I walk into a room and I feel like uh, I'm they, you know I'm, I, I'm 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 assuming here, people see as me this alien speaking a foreign language that that they don't understand. But there's genuine curiosity. Like people are all right. So when you say product market fit, like what do you really mean? Like walk us through this. Um, and so that that opportunity to 
you know, serve people and, and pull the whole team together because everyone wants to get there, right? Like, so the objective is very clear. Jason's done a great job of priming the team. Like, hey, this is the objective. This is where we are going, right? Putting right people in the right seats. And so my job has become a little bit easier uh, in terms of explaining people like how we are going to get there and we're not fighting uh, like whether we should go in that direction or not. If that was the fight, honestly, I would have struggled a little bit because if, if, if people just don't want to get somewhere or they don't understand what, what that thing is, it's just it's very hard uh, to fight that sort of headwind. But I think I got a little bit lucky. Um, I'll give you another anecdotal uh, example. So um, we're talking about um, how do we test a new beta product uh, that that we are about to launch in, in early Q1. And, you know, I walk into some rooms and, and people start to ask me questions. Like, All right. So, so what's the plan? Like, how are we going to, uh, how are we going to like, like I need a presentation, right? Like that's what they're trying to tell me. It's like, I can't create this presentation for you, unfortunately, because it's not this linear process where you, uh, you know, build something, go sell it, and you have money, right? It, it's more like defining how do you draw a painting, uh, because you know you you have this perspective on the table. Maybe the customers don't buy it. Like you're completely 100% off. I don't think we are that much off. We're going to be off, right? So it's these series of pivots that you make towards uh, building something. There are operational gaps, right? Like, so when I provide this answer, it's like, oh, but but we need to train our teams on this new thing. Like, wh when do we train our teams? Like, how do you, uh, you have to tell us, like, this is going live on such and such date so I can train my uh, product team or my support team, which is a totally valid answer, right? A uh, question. And like, how do you, how do you mesh this arts and, and sort of, uh, uh, creative process with like running a company, and so so I think we're we're in the process of figuring this out as a as a company to 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 make these um, these world that generally don't mix together make them mix. Yeah, I, and I know what you're saying too. It's a very hard thing to articulate, and myself having been through it, um, you know, launching products and you know figuring out, and then and then when people will ask me, oh, like, how do you do it? And, just like you got to go high level. I got to be like, you got to, you start and you don't give up until it's done. Like that's the, if you want a formula to put on your wall, if you want one sentence, it's don't give up, don't quit. Like you just adapt and figure it out. And I mean, there's, there's some prints and that's, you know what I'm, as I'm getting older and, and more experience, I'm learning the value and importance of principles because mm -hmm. they're, they are the concrete things that you can lean on that you can build upon without knowing like the specifics of the situation. Hmm, I see. So um, are you talking about like a Ray Dalio type like principle? Um, like like what's a good example? Yeah, so from, from everything from Ray Dalio, like about the customer, like focusing on the customer. Like it's as cliche as it is. They're the ones that are gonna, you know, hand you the money, right? They're <laughs> the ones you're bringing value to. Understanding what value is and how like, what is a Bitcoin or what is a dollar or what is a computer? It, they're like, they're, they're these concepts of value, but I'm, I'm getting uh, off for a second, but the, the principles concept are, I've found tend to be the most important. 
you know, like with your team and trust and like who we are as a people, because it's very much like akin to like the garden example where I, I can't make the plant grow, but I can create an environment where good things can grow. And I, I don't know exactly what the plant will look like, but I know I can grow a certain style of plant. And so I need to put those seeds there. Um, and then patience, like, so all of these things like trust, transparency, patience, these things end up being the most important things because you can drive yourself mad as an entrepreneur trying to like micromanage everyone and extending yourself, extending yourself. And then you, you finally get burnt out long enough that you realize you just have to find great people that are going to yield something positive and then just get everyone sort of like on the same page and focused. Wow, that's beautifully put. Like you can create an environment where plants would grow. That that's that's exactly the the, the right kind of analogy. It it's sometimes in the day to day like hard to translate that. Like if if my COO is asking me like, "Hey, when is this going live so I can train my people on it?" If I give that answer, I'm gonna get punched in the face. <laughs> right? Get me uh, start talking about gardens. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Like, what the heck are you talking about, man? Um, but but that that's the that's the challenge, right? Like, I think um, people who know like how to build and launch products now, you're trying to mesh that environment with something that's already working, uh, where where there's structure, right? So you're trying to infuse a little bit controlled chaos in this structure, and people who most people are not comfortable with this. I think I even founders sometimes are not comfortable with it, right? but but you have to do it right and you have to tell people hey this is going to be uncomfortable there's going to be chaos you will feel like you don't know what the heck is going on but it's part of the plan so like trust the process follow along with it and and that trust is built over time um and you know i'm i'm sure parts of the organization today wonders you know hey uh, why don't we have these clear answers and 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 to be able to uh, uh, verify this in, in a way that they understand, like like those are some of the interesting problems to me, uh, not just the technology part uh, that, that just makes me get out of the bed and very excited every morning. Oh yeah, the communication thing. How do I deliver this so that it's accepted and not rejected? It's like, how do I hack around the human firewalls? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? exactly. It, yeah. yeah. What are you learning right now? What are you as a leader learning right now? Yeah. Um, so I had done a bit of, uh, uh, so my, my previous startup was in food tech and we were delivering personalized dishes to people chilled. And so they just have to reheat and eat it uh, every day. And um, I had, uh, you know, I had to build a recommendation engine, but it was like very highly specific niche area of like supervised learning that I got into. Uh, and I didn't know much about anything else like i just like i read like three or four books followed some blogs and people said this is how we build recommendation and so i just like did that because that was the need of the day uh and didn't really understand how things under the hood works and i'm starting to get a little bit under the hood for my own sanity because it, it um i go a little insane if i don't understand how something works I, I think a lot of engineers are like that. Um, so I'm starting to get a little uh, under the hood. And uh, then then these communication thing, like hacking, right? I, I didn't quite think about it that way until you said it, but it is that, right? Like, so I, I'm, I'm doing micro pitches every day about specific things that I'm trying to communicate and see what's resonating. Uh, and then I hear people repeating same or similar words to me about a topic that, that we had talked about earlier. I was like, yes, victory. Uh, <laughs> So, 
so so that that's been uh, uh, very exciting. And just networking, man, it's its own world. Like there are so many, like how does packet switching work? At a conceptual level, you may get it, but if you get into like different manufacturers and different protocols that have been implemented just for Cisco, it's its own kind of world. It's like uh, database systems, right? If you try to understand how in-memory database works versus like a, a document-based DB, like it's just it's very different. Normal users don't think about it. It's like you make an API call, something gets saved in the database, voila, it works. And same thing with networking. You don't really think about it until you have to solve the, the problem every day. So yeah, the, these three things, lots to learn, a uh, lot, of, lot of little uh, nuances that you have to understand, specifically if it didn't come from this part of the world like, uh, like I didn't. Um, I, knew, I knew pretty much nothing about networking until I joined Trextel. Maybe I, I learned some things in school and that was really it. Yeah, and fresh eyes are, if you have a really smart person and then they get fresh eyes to a new industry, sometimes that can be illuminating. It can be very helpful. Yeah, it's like asking a lot of dumb questions, like, hey, why this? Like, uh, why do we have to have static IPs for these devices? Uh, well, so we can call them from the server. Well, that makes sense. But why can the device call us, right? It's just like, it's these uh, asking a lot of dumb question theory until you get to like the, the, the bottom of it. Um, and annoying people uh, like, okay, so explain to me, how, how does this work? Uh, why do we have this thing uh, that, that has been very rewarding? It, it's seldom you get a chance where uh, you sort of get to climb down this mountain. Like I built my career building mobile apps to start with, and then I have done some machine learning systems in the past, but you know, those kind of mobile apps and, and sort of the, the uh, backend applications is what I would say I built my career on. I, recently in last four years or so started building uh, ML systems too, but it's just so difficult to climb down a mountain that you've already climbed on. Like it's just so easy to say, okay, mobile apps are my thing or websites or whatever that is, is your thing. And then you keep just going more and more in that direction. Personally, I've uh, found it more interesting to like climb down that mountain. All right, I understand that how that works. I may not be up to date on like the latest and greatest library that does X, Y, and Z, but I'm gonna go learn this new thing from scratch that I know nothing about. Um, it can be challenging at the same time, very rewarding. Yeah, I found for my personal happiness, I need to be a beginner at something happening in my life. So whether like, you know, this year I started really getting into piano and more music. Again, I've already pretty good at the guitar stuff. And I, I like being like 101, at least in a small area of my life. Because if you're an expert in every single area of your life all the time, then you're not growing, you're not like stretching, or you're not uncomfortable learning new things. And that seems to be something like a muscle that you need to keep strong. Yeah, uh, I mean, it just gets boring, right? As yeah. simple as that. <laughs> it gets boring after a while to keep doing the same exact thing in that way where, you know, someone walks up to you and say, oh, I have this problem. Oh, here's how you do. I've done this 500 times. Like, this is the answer. Like, not having to do any work to be able to provide that answer all the time. It just, I can't live that way. No. <laughs> uh, it gets very repetitive. This is great. So are you are you guys hiring right now? Are you hiring engineers and things like that? 
Yeah, we have uh, multiple uh, uh, backend engineer and networking engineer positions. Go to trexel.com slash careers uh, if you're interested in learning about those opportunities. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at uh, itapandroid. Um, tweet me. Uh, let's talk about uh, your networking problems. That's perfect. Yeah. And on your site, do you guys have like a downloadable thing? Like what's your how, what's your bait that you use in sales? We don't have this material on website, but if you go to the product summary part on the website, it talks about, it's not downloadable, but it talks about based on the industry that you are in. And, and of course, we can provide you a lot of different material if you reach out to me, uh, tpatel at trexel.com or just from the website. Um, happy to happy to talk about any kind of white paper or, or other case studies. Uh, that we. Yeah, what would be the thing that like sets off in their back of their mind, I should reach out, like... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a great question. Um, so no one wants to deal with knocks. Even people who run knocks don't want to have knocks. Um, so if you're one of those people uh, who, who don't uh, want to deal with a knock uh, or make your knock more efficient, that would be the trigger why you would talk to us. Perfect. See, that's easy. I like that. We can, <laughs> we can run ads with that all day, right? With all these creative yeah. things like frustrated yeah, with awesome. your knock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Slow yeah. knock. We could do that. Yeah. <laughs> right? I love that. Slow knock. Yes. Slow knock. Yeah. <laughs> Be a yeah. nice little play on words or something. We could do some stuff. I'm, I'm auditioning for your marketing department right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we are hiring in marketing too, you know, just so you know. You, you're good with words. I like that. Thank you, guys. It's been phenomenal. All right. Talk soon, friend. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.